Thank you very much for checking out episode number 59 of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. This episode features three interviews taped recently with great musicians. And those interview subjects are Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm, Chris Hillman from The Birds and many other projects, and singer, songwriter, producer, and man of many hats, Mike Viola. First up is my interview with Lizzie Hale from the band Hailstorm. Being the front person and primary songwriter of Hailstorm may be her day job, but Lizzie Hale is currently hosting the Access TV series called A Year in Music. It's a fun, countdown-style year-in-review show that looks back at some of the best years in music. It combines interviews with some of your famous artists talking about favorite moments in music, archival clips of performances... All sorts of fun stuff, and as I say in this interview to Lizzie herself, Access TV is actually my favorite channel. It not only has Impact Wrestling, which has given me a lot of talent for this podcast, but great documentaries, concerts, always something great on that channel every day. Lizzie was a delight to talk with. I had previously interviewed her over email, but this is the first time that we spoke by phone. Hope to speak with her again very soon. Lizzie, thank you so much for your time. Long-time listener, to say the least. But it's great to see you trying something new here with hosting the show for Access TV. How long was it from getting pitched or auditioning to actually being able to announce this? Um, well, first of all, Darren, thank you so much for taking the time for me. Um, I really appreciate um, talking to a friendly voice, and uh, <laughs> and thanks for taking the time. Um, as far as the timeline goes, um, you know, time is elastic anymore and so it's, it's actually really it's it's hard to like pinpoint because it feels like it actually happened um you know fast as far as that aspect is and um i'd been doing a couple different things just during you know lockdown and this pandemic and just kind of reaching out in different areas and really just as a personal challenge for myself um it's just to see what i could do you know I've, I've kind of always been that way um i mean for heaven's sake hailstorm was my band was born that way too. Where it's like, yeah. well, let's just dive headfirst into the shark tank and we'll figure it out, you know? Um, so I've been doing a lot of that lately, but a lot of those different projects ended up, uh, you know, obviously garnering the attention of the Access TV folks. And, um, and I've, I've actually known a lot of the people that work at Access TV uh, for a couple of years now as far as just, you know, in various, uh, you know, awards shows and little things that they've, they've ended up hosting before. Um, so we've kind of always been ships that pass in the night, but have not actually done something <laughs> together. So, uh, so it's been, uh, it, it was just so neat to like get the, uh, basically get the email and say like, Hey, we want to consider you to be a host for 
for the next season of, of A Year Music, which is an amazing show. And it's like literally like going back in a time machine and actually like just dissecting, you know, every year and everything that happened with it, you know, politically and natural disaster and scandal. And there's a little Hollywood gossip in there, but then ha obviously having the full vein just be how music shaped it. Um, so I, I was so super excited about it. And so I, I did, you know, kind of an audition over Zoom and, um, you know, literally it was just like waiting for like over the weekend. It was like a long weekend. So I'm just like, oh man, yeah. I, maybe did I pass the audition? Like, did I do good? And, uh, then, you know, I, I got the email saying I got, got, I made the cut or whatever it was. And, and, uh, and we started scheduling, uh, time to shoot. So, um, it was, they did everything so amazingly. Um, the, the crew came out to Nashville where, where I, uh, where, where I reside now. And, and, uh, we did it on location. There was, it was a very minimal crew. Um, everybody was super respectful, safety guidelines galore. You know, I want to even say just like, just for safety's sake, you know, everybody just went overkill, which is awesome. <laughs> you know, super respectful. Yes. Um, but it was so, it was so much fun because, you know, I literally, I got to, again, you know, this is exciting because it's something that I've never done before. Um, and it's also was this kind of almost journey of self-discovery in a way, because at this point in time, I know, I know who I am right. when I walk onto a stage to perform as a musician, but I, I had no idea when I opened up the door, <laughs> you know, to, to film the first episode, um, uh, this maiden voyage, um, who I was going to be, you know, like, oh, who am I going to be once the, once the camera turns on and we're recording and I'm, you know, and I'm, you know, reading my lines, like, who am I going to be? So um, it's been amazing to kind of see all of these different influences that maybe I have absorbed throughout the years of growing up, you know, as in, I can see, you know, in these episodes, my influence of the VH1 host that I used to admire and the, and the MTV host and even Access Hollywood and Extra and like all of those <laughs> crazy shows from the 90s that, um, you know, I remember in some subconscious way absorbing. So I was able and, and thanks, thankfully to the, you know, the Access TV people, um, they really let me put my stamp on all of these years and all of these, you know, and in this show and let me be pretty much just unapologetically myself. And so I, um, again, it was such a neat experience to just kind of hop on that train and see, and see what happens. You're such a pro that you answered a few of my questions that I had coming right there. <laughs> and before I go back to complimenting you, Access TV is my favorite network on television because it checks all the boxes. You get the classic rock and music. You get the documentaries and the concerts. You get some MMA and wrestling. You get some great old movies or classic movies, rather. Do you have a favorite show on Access TV besides A Year in Music? Um, honestly, that, that was, I, I love, I love, uh, Sammy's show as well because I love him so much. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like besides Sammy and then a year in music, they have so many, what I love about it is that it's able to be this amazing variety because even as a musician who, who, you know, I, I, my entire life is music and it's, and that's the common thread, but you can get burnt out on just watching just that, you know, or just watching the documentary. Just like, so I love that this is just kind of this in-house hub 
for all of the things that I could possibly be interested in. I've actually learned a lot about wrestling through watching this channel because um, I've only had some meager experience with, you know, the, the NXT stuff, you yeah. know, that, that uh that i've done in the past and so when i was like well where do i even start <laughs> like oh sweet <laughs> this is here too so it's really just such a neat um obviously like i said there's that common thread that core you know or that heart so to speak that they obviously it's it's everything all roads lead to music but um but you can just see all the little branches you know off of that off of that tree and so it's it's uh it's it's really i mean regardless of whether you you're musician or you're into rock or you're into pop or you're into wrestling or just into some good old-fashioned like comedic entertainment because believe me um you know no, nobody can really watch it without <laughs> without having a little chuckle here and there depending on whose personality is is coming through at the moment um there's really just something for everybody so um I, this is another reason why i was really excited to be a part of the access tv family because i felt like it wasn't just me being put into one box. It was just the whole thing. Right. That's a really good point right there, that it's that diversity that you sometimes crave. You don't want to just be thought of as the musician, the singer, that kind of thing. And you were such a natural. I promise there's more compliments coming. But you're such a natural <laughs> in front of the camera. It doesn't sound like you're just reading cue cards or TPT or whatever you want to call it. It sounds like you actually know this kind of stuff. I grew up watching a lot of those bad time life compilation commercials and you see Roger Daltrey, oh, yeah. who, I, who I love Roger Daltrey, but you know, he's not the best reader per se. Uh, how much <laughs> of what you're saying is word for word versus them giving you bullet points and you riffing a little bit? Uh, I think that for the most, for uh, honestly, I want to say about 80 to maybe 90% of it was them literally giving me the scripts and guidelines. And, but even when I was reading, you know, and it, obviously we were using a teleprompter and all of those things and um, which is a whole different experience. And I, like, one of those things in my mind, I've, I'd only used a teleprompter once before when I was, um, uh, when I was uh, hosting or presenting at the Grammys um, a couple years ago. And, and, uh, and I'm like, man, what, what if I'm terrible at this? I've literally committed full hook, line, and singer. What if I'm and what I realized is that absolutely, they were just so nice. And they're like, hey, this is like what we got. And you can read throughout. You can expand whatever you want. And so a lot of it was honestly me kind of going off script and being like, well, this is actually <laughs> what was going on in my life. And, um, and it was fairly like, it was fairly natural. And it was something that um, and and th thank you so much for the compliment. Um, but it really was a, just as a surprise to me <laughs> than anybody else. I'm like, oh no, I'm actually like I could be good at this. Um, so that was so that was exciting for me. And and again, like just such a huge thanks to to the Access TV people for letting me do that. And like I said, letting me be, you know, unapologetic in my story and inserting my own self into all of these years. Um, because regardless of what anybody knows about Hailstorm, you know, yeah, we made our debut um, on Atlantic Records in 2009, but um, and technically signed in 2005, but we've been a band since 97. Mm -hmm. So it was really neat to just kind of, you know, like I said, hop on that, <laughs> hop inside of that time machine and just go back and be like, oh yeah, this happened this year. And holy crap. And so you just got to learn a lot about it too. 
I can imagine. And you said the magic name before, Sammy Hagar, one of the great shows on Access TV. <laughs> can you give any hints or spoilers? Will we be seeing any Van Halen stuff within the series? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, especially considering, and it's, it's funny because, so as far as myself as, as, a, as a music fan and growing up listening to music, um, I've been talking a lot about this, whereas I, I realized I was a child of, of the 90s, you know, so as a teenager and as, as I'm coming into my own, right. it's the 90s, but I was obsessed with 80s hard rock and metal. So, so there was so many, I mean, I literally, I, there is specifically, you know, um, one or two times during these episodes where I end up referencing the fact that like, my parents' song was Panama by Van Halen, if that gives you any inkling of wow. the kind of <laughs> childhood that I grew up with. Um, so, so I remember from an early age, you know, in fact, I think my mom actually had, she ended up sending me some pictures of me with headphones on. She's like, I'm pretty sure this was, you know, it's, it's either, you know, women and children first or it's 1980. You know, it's, it was one of those that we were listening, that they were forcing me to listen to. Um, but that ended up being such, you know, from the time that I was a very young kid, you know, uh, this was, you know, this was my first introduction to music was those times. And so um, also, if you can imagine uh, me being, I, I, I ended up referencing some things too or out of my own life, whereas when I was 11, you know, I ended up taking um, an Alice Cooper and Dio CD to uh, a sleepover. Yes. Um, trying to story. Trying to, trying to convince, you know, and so like there were a lot, a lot of little things that I was able to pick out of all of these years, even if it was something like 1989, which obviously I wasn't, I was born in 83. So I, I wasn't like extremely self-aware in 89, but all of those things, there are some things that I definitely remember trickling in. And so, like I said, it was me actually being able to go back in time and actually learn about those years, um, just even besides the music. So it's just, uh, it was such a cool journey for me. I can imagine. Well, being mindful of your time here, the next time I interview you, I'm going to talk about Van Halen and 80s rock. But for now, Lizzie, <laughs> uh, any last words for the kids? Oh, for, for the kids, uh, <laughs> this one's for the children. Um, honestly, I am so excited to, uh, to be making my TV host debut on Access TV uh, with A Year in Music. And, you know, again, thank you so much to, to the Access TV family for having me. But also, specifically, thank you to everybody that has not only um, accepted me as, you know, a musician and or, or whatever, a rock star or whatever you want to call me, um, but accepting me as all of the things me. And I, I will promise you, you know, during this, uh, this journey <laughs> with, with a year of music, you're going to be seeing all sorts of different sides that maybe you didn't actually even know about me. So um, I'm just excited for everyone to watch it and, and uh, make sure you tune in. <laughs> Looking forward. Just keep up all that greatness and uh, congrats on this great hosting debut there. Oh, thank you, Darren. You're awesome. And, and I can't wait to see you after all of this, uh, <laughs> after the, you know, the gates open again. <laughs> Next up is my interview with Chris Hillman. Chris Hillman first found success, you could argue, as a member of the Birds, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame group, 
which is really one of the first groups I ever remember hearing as a kid. I told him that during the interview, but more importantly to a lot of people, Chris was a member of the Flying Burrito Brothers Band. That's a band that a lot of people believe should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Chris and I spoke about his past and those bands in the Desert Rose Band, but a large focus of our interview was his new memoir called Time Between My Life as a Bird, Burrito, and Beyond. Chris could not have been nicer. Going into this one, as I kind of mentioned to him, I tried to interview him in 2005 or so, and at the time I was told he wasn't interested in talking about the past. So it's great to see about 15 years later that Chris felt it was time to write a book, and within this book he really does take the high road and have a great recollection of everything, but at the same time not find the fault in others for any shortcomings he ever had. Gracious guy, really do hope to speak with him again soon. Hey Darren, hi. Hey, Chris, thanks for making time to say the very least. How's your day going so far? Pretty good. <laughs> so far, so good. Where are you calling from? Long Island, New York. I know you've played here many times. Not sure when you did last. Not, not for a long time. My father's place. Exactly. That about, place actually reopened. You know, I must have played that in two, di- three different entities, different groups and stuff, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that was the route. You go. You play my father's place, and you go into the city, and you play uh, bottom line. Da 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 da. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, congratulations on this new book. It's it's out in basically a month and a half, two months. But when did you actually finish it? Um, you know, I actually finished it about. Let me ask my wife. When did I finish it before we did? <laughs> God, she's smarter than I am. Well, I finished it a few years ago, but when BMG uh, approached me and Scott Bomer, who runs heads up their publishing things, I'm, I'd, I'd love to see some of it. So it was really done. I gave him uh, most of the manuscript to read, and then they offered me a deal. They were very interested and felt that. I didn't need to have a co-writer, which was very complimentary. And so, but sure. then the work starts because Darren, then my daughter is an English lit teacher. So she had already <laughs> edited it merciless. Boy, did she get me a big red pen and she's going through it. If I, cause I'd be in the midst of the writing and I'd write these horrible cliches. It was like heaven on earth or whatever. And she'd go, no dad. Uh-uh. And she'd write a big red line through it. But, um, she edited it originally, initially, and then my wife uh, started to get involved with it. She hadn't even read it prior to that. My wife was incredibly helpful because she would say, why don't you uh, uh, embellish this part where you're talking about going into the studio with Manassas or whatever. Uh, and and I would. I would go back and I'd sort of add more to it as we went through. So it was, a, it was another another year year and a half or two that I finally got it completely where I liked it. And then Scott Bomar, uh, great editor. I mean, he came up with the idea, why don't we open with the fire? I said, that's a great idea. So that's how that came about. So, so it's a seven year labor of love, uh, initially just started for fun and I had a good time and I remembered things and I kept writing and writing and writing. And, but then I got really seriously put it under the microscope after I signed a deal. When you you started writing the book, was it more to 
document your past and tell your side of the story? Or was it also, hey, this would be a fun creative project? Both, but it was it was a lot of. Uh, uh, let me let me let me set the story right. Let me set this story straight, and because uh, I had I had read so many inaccurate uh, portrayals of the birds and the Flying Breeder Brothers, those two bands alone. Um, but I thought that was part of it. Uh, I wanted to leave something for my two kids. I didn't have grandkids yet, but I wanted to leave something for them. It's just basically about music. It was just about having a real passion for it and, and, and extremely blessed and lucky life for the last almost 60 years. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to spoil where it is in the book in case somebody hears this or reads this before uh, <laughs> they check, you know, that kind of thing. But you say the quote, I never thought about the money, the future or chasing down stardom. And that's just one of the examples of the gratitude that you always show. But one thing I wasn't sure about was, were you always filled with gratitude or was there just a wake up kind of moment for you to become a positive guy? That's a good, that's very good. I, 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 um, there was a wake up moment. And, and part of this book is here I'm coming out of a 16 year old kid and my dad kills himself. And it was extremely difficult. He was a, a wonderful man. He was not an abusive, bad person. He was a sweet, affectionate, very bright, loving man. And he just had some issues and it over, overwhelmed him. Unbeknownst to any of us, uh, that we didn't know he was going through this. But so a part of this book is here I'm coming out of it. I had this anger for 30 years through all this success, birds, Manassas, burrito, and I had all this anger issues. I was so mad. And that's what suicide, one of the, one of the side effects of suicide is you, you're very angry with the person for leaving him. Right. And he left us. And, and as you read, it, uh, we were broke. We had no idea. We had no idea. And so uh, we, we did what we have to do. My brother was already gone. He was in the Air Force. My older sister was married. So my little sister, and as you read, and, and myself and my mother, we moved to the city, which was completely alien. And, and uh, I went to work in the daytime and, and went to school at night. And my sister, blah, blah, blah. But we had to. There was no options. No one said, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not moving to L.A. I'm going to do that. You had to. Mm -hmm. you had and we went and we did what we had to do. And uh, I owe that to my mother, who's a wonderful, very tough gal, and, and kept it together. But you'll see where I finally didn't take things for granted. And it was far into the book where I got older. I had, uh, I had um, survived uh, this hepatitis C. It was killing me. It, it, they actually had, had cured me in two or three months, and the doctor kept me on this medicine, which damn near killed me, almost took me out. Um, but I made it through that, and I made it through uh, – I, I, I developed the confidence. I learned how to be a better singer and a better songwriter, et cetera. Uh, but initially when I started out uh, – this is a long answer to your question. What a great out, answer. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't have any uh, – uh, aspiration to be a, a, a rock star or a country star. I wasn't really good enough. You know, I didn't have the confidence. So, so I wasn't trying to be the next Bruce Springsteen or the next um, George Strait or something. I, I didn't have that then, but then I developed it and I learned as we all should. I just went and learned how to do it. 
And by the time Desert Rose Band came along, I felt like I had really uh, was able to grasp a leadership role, more more prominent leadership role, and leading a band, writing the, the songs, and and uh, running the band. And that's that's and that band was the longest one I was in, eight years, just about. So um, yeah, it's just I think um, I think maybe the one thing I, I would hope the book. Uh, uh, would do for anybody reading is to give them hope. And I had developed uh, just a, a, a work ethic that my dad taught me, and I just kept going. I'd fall on my face, I'd pick myself up, you know, figuratively, and just keep going. And I mean, there was so in the early years, so many times I thought, well, I'm going to go register for the next semester at college. <laughs> And it, and so and a door would open, and it happened that way. And I and I always uh, mentioned to the book the the people that were mentors to me, from the very first one in my high school, my this wonderful man, the high school custodian, the janitor. And can you imagine in this climate, in this day and age, you couldn't go to the teacher's house or the janitor's house on the weekend, right? You know, it's it's like I would go there. Bill Smith, I'd go there on the weekend. He'd sit me down. We'd play. He'd show me stuff. He really gave me an education. I was all 15, 16 years old. But I always, I, I really hold it. And mentors, it shows you they don't that they're not aware of that role uh, uh, given to them. But they're the people in our lives that say, "Why don't you try try doing it this way?" You know what I'm saying? And so uh, that was a big part of it, too. I also had some great friends that uh, stuck by me after. That's like Steven. Steven, Steven's still a good guy. He, he mm-hmm. uh, helped me out when I, after Manassas was over, and I had this issue going with the solo album and the producer I had. And Steven, I called him up, and he says, well, let's get Ron and Howard out, Albert out there and get going on this record. And he helped me. He didn't, wasn't trying to take over or do anything. He just... Guided me out of that and fixed it for me. Crosby helped me when I was sick. Roger was always there for me. Uh, and just, you know, I wish I could say it about everybody I worked with. It, it wasn't always the case, but I, I just don't hold any animosity towards anybody I worked with. What's the point after all these years, you know? Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of my lost at, at such a young age, you know. Without uh, being a spoiler guy, there's a great, anecdote towards the end about Roger and him helping you out. So that's just kind of a great ongoing theme that this is a guy who's going to tell the truth and tell what happened, but he's not there to throw everyone under the bus. In an earlier draft of the book, was there ever a point that you almost were throwing people under the bus? Um, I think I did. I think I, I might have got a little harsher uh, with certain people in the beginning, but we quickly, I quickly looked at that and I went, no, because then I remembered uh, a fella who had been in a very, very, very successful band and uh, had written a book about that and was so mean. It, it just about derailed his career. I won't bring names up. Um, it's, a, it's a group that's named after a bird. <laughs> I can't tell you that. We can't do that. But my point is, you cannot put down on paper that vitriol it'll get you you can't do it and and why would you do it why if if you're going to write something out and say they did this to me and this is why i and it's there it's always the scapegoat um 
uh, concept that does it, it backfires on you 10, 10 plus. You know, you can't do that. So, yeah, I think maybe in the beginning I did uh, have more of a harsher assessment of certain people, but I quickly fixed that. I went, uh, 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 we're not doing that. We're going to talk about the music. Right. And we're going to ever so subtly say, well, he had some really tough times. Like Gene Clark, wonderful. What a talent. Prolific. When we started the birds out, Darren, uh, and Gene and Mike and I were sharing this little house for a tiny place for a couple months and we were just starting. And Gene would be always, he would have two or three songs written every week. Two or three songs. Two, wow. two of them would be incredible, if not all of them. Yeah, it was so prolific. And such a tortured life. And you go, my God. And you go, well, and then, then you go through that thing of, well, do you have to put yourself in that frame of mind to create? No, you don't. You do not. Right. And um, so anyway. Yeah. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> Balls ball on your court, buddy. Go. Well, rewinding about 15 years, I was supposed to interview you when you were playing BB Kings in New York City. And they said, well, you can email questions to Chris. And I emailed some questions, and the publicist at the time went, Chris thinks that these are a little too much about his past. And then they pointed out to uh, your bio at the time where it said something along the lines of that it's all a book that you're not ready to write and you're nowhere near finished making memories. So when I saw, hey, there's a Chris memoir coming, there was such a sigh of relief to see that you were going to finally – tell your story. So you mentioned that it was, you know, a long time in the making, even before BMG and mm -hmm. all of that. So that's more of a statement than a question. But was it a specific mm -hmm. person whose memoir or bio that you read? Because you just mentioned a cautionary tale of one that did it wrong. Was there somebody whose bio that you read and you went, this is the way to do it? Yes. Good one. Yes. And I don't it's, I don't make a habit of reading uh, life stories. I think I read Keith Richards' book, um, which I thought at first I went, gosh, he wrote this. No, he didn't. He had a co-writer. But does not matter? It was an interesting book. Sure. And a lot of the people in that book I knew pretty well. He opens the book with this guy and, and that I knew, Fred Sessler. That was funny. But the one book I did read was Linda Ronstadt's book, and I loved it, and she never that was my inspiration, how to approach what I was doing, because she never, ever uh, denigrated anybody that she had worked with. It was her, in her story, it was all about music from the time she's in Tucson, listening to her dad sing or listening to her mother or, or, or hearing bluegrass or, or hearing what's coming out of California. I think she mentions the squirrel barkers in her book, which is quite interesting. And uh, so, her, and I actually, I did send her, I think I sent her a an album, Biden My Time, and I sent her a little note, and I said, I have to tell you, I loved your book, and it was such an inspiration how you handled it, your story in regards to the people you knew and worked with. And that's really, that was a, quite a, a, a wonderful thing. That that really put it in, in perspective for me. And I, Yeah, I, I can imagine. Good. There's few people that you can learn more from than Linda Ronset, to say the least. And no kidding. And yeah. of, of course, there's that great, great quote that's associated with the press materials and all that from Tom Petty. 
about how, you know, the Eagles, you guys basically paid their fuel <laughs> costs and all that. I <laughs> that love was, that quote. Uh, he wrote he wrote that uh, uh, when I got this award from the Folk Alliance and and my wife, bless her heart, she had all these people write a little note, you know, and they were going to read them. I had no idea that was going to happen. And I, I see it as someone reads that note from Tom. And, and it was funny the way he wrote it, because I, it's going to be in the book. I think we, we've got it uh, as part of the photos. But it's so funny because, you know, he was sitting on on his plane or his tour bus writing this out in longhand. And yeah. there's a place where he crosses a word out. And, but it's a, fu- it's a funny uh, quip that he wrote. And then some other people wrote stuff, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, your book is not short on great anecdotes with great people, which is a testament to a, a longevity-oriented career. And can I ask you two quick questions, then you'll be on your way? Of course you can. Awesome. My first question is, when I think of Chris Hillman, uh, I think of amazing music. The Birds, Turn, 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 was probably the first song I ever remember hearing and and liking. So, of course, I've liked your music almost my whole life. But I don't know a lot about you, even after reading this book, beyond the music, the family, uh, spiritual beliefs and all that. Are you a sports guy? Do you have any random hobbies that we don't really know about? I, well, Darren, I used to. You know, I mean, when I was a younger guy, I, could, I used to surf a lot. I I did, actually. Uh, when Desert Rose Band decided we're all done, everybody, and anyway, I was a, the, the one band where we all said, okay, we're done. We're all friends. We're still friends today. Uh, then I went back, and I had been studying martial arts in the 70s, actually from a, one of Chuck Norris's schools, believe it or not, before he was a an actor or whatever he was. Uh, he had yeah. uh, some schools, and I had started back in 70, 1970, and then I, I had this time, so I'd get back into that and spent five years in Chinese Kempo and got a black belt, and then I got a second-degree black belt, which was harder. Uh, so I did that. I surfed. I used to ride bikes. I, I had a lot of stuff going on. And prior to COVID and all this stuff, uh, I was a huge NFL fan. I still am. I sort of looked, turned it on yesterday, but it's not the same. I don't Definitely know. I not. see the refs with black masks on. I go, uh-uh. <laughs> take the mask off and call the play. You know, call the foul, call the flag, whatever it says. So, uh, yeah, I was active, at, very active um, athletically physically and all manner of things and mostly uh quite enamored with surfing i started doing that back in 1957 and uh, it was still it was just starting to sort of get popular back then but yeah i i don't do that anymore not very many things i can still do well it seems like all the people who founded Great country, soft rock, Laurel Canyon, whatever you want to call it, everyone seemed to be playing softball. (laughs) Not me, buddy. Not Not you. I think I played one softball game with some of those guys. I remember I went to play softball, and I think Tim Schmidt was playing and a couple other people. I I just didn't go. I didn't go for those kind of uh, uh, group activity deals, you know. I played (laughs) sports in – Oh gosh, freshman and was I freshman or sophomore in high school? I got just hammered in football. I, I lasted about two weeks. I got hit so bad uh, that I had uh, my back was a mess for up until 
eight years ago when I finally had surgery on it. But, uh, so I really wasn't that kind of a, a group sports guy. That's why I love surfing. Surfing was between me and the water, right? And and, uh, and the karate was interesting because of the art of it, and then uh, where you're, it's you're you're just sort of figuring out this whole thing against one other person. Not in a bad way necessarily, but anyway. The other thing that was interesting about my martial arts stuff was uh, this was a, 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 a style that was started by Ed Parker. Ed Parker was the guy that taught Elvis. But the one thing that was really interesting, I'm just adding this, is that when we, right before we all tested for black belt, when you were seen deemed worthy to test for your black belt, you had to turn in a 15-page thesis Hmm. on something to do with the martial arts. I said, that's an interesting thing. And I did it. It was a great exercise. I had written a paper since high school, 1962. <laughs> so this was 19, uh, this was in 1980. Uh, no, 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 excuse me, 1990s. So all of a sudden, here I'm writing a paper. But it was fun. Anyway, so th- those are the things I used to do, I used to be able to do. Well, my wife took my bicycle away. I can't do any bike rides. <laughs> used to be grew up with horses, as you know, in the book and all those things. So, got it. And my my last one, and say as little or as much as you want. Is any last words for the kids? For who? Which kids? I think it's uh, whatever yeah. kids are going to be hearing and this kids. because let's let's face it. You you have uh, three four generations of fans at this point. Oh. Well, I'll tell you something. I, 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 there was a period of time uh, up until oh, recently, up a couple of years, I would get questions from kids all the time, 18, 19-year-old kids. Do you have any advice for Mr. Hillman? First, I love that. Would you have any advice for me me and my band or me as a singer? And I, and I always would say, uh, continue to play, work really hard at it, but, but go to school and get a four-year degree, minimum four-year degree in something you like. Not something you think, I'm going to make a lot of money, I'm going to go be a lawyer. You hate. You might like it, I don't know. But And they'd look at me like I was crazy, but, uh, you know, I did a podcast, Darren, with these guys, Chris and Chris from Vampire Weekend. Oh, yeah. I never heard of them. And they were the nice kids. These guys all went to Yale. <laughs> they all have degrees in Columbia, excuse me, and all three of the, of the major guys. And they were so nice and, and, and great. But point being, I would tell these young kids, give me some advice. I'd say, get a four-year degree. So you have something to fall back on. And as you can see, this was before the record business took such a, a left turn and, right. and was just not, not a business model anymore. That yeah. all makes it's sense It's still to there. Me. It's still out there. But you know what I'm saying. It's not the same as when I started you're talking to somebody who has a master's that he doesn't use. So, <laughs> so, so. Yeah, but you don't understand. See, I have great respect for you that you did that. I wish I could have. I mean, yeah, I could go back to school at 75, but I, mean, I don't really think I want to do that. So I, I really educated myself on my own, and I would have probably majored in history, if not English lit. Two things I liked that I did fairly well in high school in. But good for you, buddy. So, yeah, you're not the first person that's ever said that to me. I've heard that a lot. Or I've got a doctorate and I don't use it. Some people, I've heard that from somebody, too. Exactly. Yeah. Would I, you go up? i got to ask you a question. i got to hang up. I've go. I'm sorry. But what did you get a master's in? Library and Information Sciences. Okay. 
I know somebody that has a, a degree in library and, and whatever it is, master's. Yeah. Yeah. Field is always changing, yeah. man. But Chris, thank you so much for your time. Congrats on this book and just keep up the greatness. Thank you, Darren. I appreciate your call. It was My a very pleasure. Good interview. Have a great thank rest you. of the day. All right, buddy. Thanks. Bye-bye. Outrocast. Last but definitely not least is my interview with Mike Viola, who has an excellent new album called God Muffin. But God Muffin is not the only reason I wanted to speak with Mike. Yes, Mike is one of my favorite singers and songwriters of all time. There is no disputing that. I have been a fan of his since I believe 1997. It might have been 1996 where I saw him open up for They Might Be Giants at Irving Plaza with his old band, The Candy Butchers. From there, I learned that he was the guy who sang That Thing You Do. Blew my mind that that was the same exact guy. Then from there, did other digging, kept following his career and all that. And fast forward to, I believe, 2008. I saw that he was playing at Joe's Pub, hadn't seen him live in a bunch of years, reached out, and I told him that I thought I could get him a record deal in Japan. Surprisingly, he wrote back to me. Even more surprisingly, I did land him a record deal and he toured Japan and I went with him to Japan as sort of a de facto tour manager. And that was the first time I really spent a lot of time talking with him. Wound up doing some management work and ultimately that led Mike to introduce me to some of his friends over the years who I consulted for at different points like Rachel Yamagata, Tracy Bonham, Lucy Woodward. And that's not the only way that Mike changed my life. If you like the sound of this podcast, credit that to Mark Pirro, who I met when he was attending NYU and interning for Mike. Mark is one of my favorite people there is. A few years ago, my wife Melissa and I got married in Las Vegas, a destination wedding. And you send out invites to everybody to that sort of thing, not expecting very many people to come out. But when Mike and his wife Audrey RCP'd and drove out from L.A. to Vegas to come to this wedding, to <laughs> spend time with me and family and all of that, that meant the world to me. And I'm sure a few times over the course of that wedding, I cornered my longtime friend since high school, Joe Hassan, and went, I can't believe Mike Viola is at my wedding. And I feel bad, but I did play That Thing You Do during the wedding. Back to the interview at hand here, because I do realize this is getting a little long-winded and sentimental here. God Muffin is an excellent record, definitely breaks new ground for Mike as an artist. He played, sang, produced pretty much the whole album, except a string part, which we talk about early into the chat. I think you're going to get some insight into him as an artist, what's coming up for him as an artist, and why he does the things that he does. Oh my God, that pun was not intended. Sorry, Mike. Anyway, enjoy this one. Am I getting you from the home secret studio? Uh, we can say that. <laughs> A location not to be known. I mean, you know, I, I do my studio, but I, I keep the, uh, the reception's not strong there because I, I like to not like talk on the phone there. Ah, interesting. So that's by design yeah. there. You know, launching kind of straight into it, was the new album a 100% made in the home studio? The new album is 100% me. Uh, besides the viola that opens the album, that's uh, Eric Lee, who I've collaborated with a lot on that record, Acousto Di Perfecto. I 
basically did that record with him. Eric played deal on that. Got it. So the drums are actually in your home studio? Yeah, all the drums. Um, that's just me in my in my little studio and with on my '66 Slingerland kit. And um, yeah, you sound surprised. <laughs> I sound surprised because I remember years ago when I was asking you about playing drums, and you're like, "Yeah, I don't know. I, I get other drummers to do that." And then once or twice, I'd watch you in a jam on a like tight budget thing, be like, yeah, I'll play the drums myself. So I'm wondering when you kind of became comfortable with playing the drums on your own recordings. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. I'm still not comfortable, you know, uh, I, I but I think I, I'm comfortable playing guitar. You know, I, I kind of approach all of this stuff. All of music is all still a mystery to me. It really is like, I mean, not intellectually, I can describe it and, and talk talk you through it but um <laughs> when i approach when i approach playing it i like to i like to be a little bit scared so i think um that's that kind of makes me um as griff goldsmith who you know for my money is like one of the best drummers in la uh he's in the band Dawes. yeah uh what he he um he calls it my dumb drumming. <laughs> dumb drumming. <laughs> yeah, he's like, man, he's like, it's so hard to play dumb. And I'm like, what? He's like, it's so I can't play drums the way you play because it's so Victor and Drizzo used to say the same thing. He's like, it's not something a drummer would do. So I'm certainly not a drummer. I uh uh but uh I I like the sound of me playing drums uh to to this particular batch of songs at this particular point in my life, you know? Yeah. The drum sounds to me remind me of Hey Jude. Is that kind of nice. on purpose? No, uh, nothing, not, nothing was on purpose as far as um, trying to make it sound like something else. But that said, yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, totally flattered. I, uh, I, I love the, the sound of the drums on that song. No, the, the drums just sort of, um, they evolve. Like I, I don't keep things set up. Like, um, you know, there's people, uh, some musicians I know that have home studios like to have it set up like plug and play, mm -hmm. which is basically exactly what it sounds like. You go in and you, and you just let it rip and everything's already set up. So you don't have to switch to the other side of your brain where all the technical shit exists. Um, you can just stay creative, but um, I, I prefer to bounce back and forth because I feel like, the technical stuff, there's room for creativity in the engineering. Of course there is. Um, so I don't want to leave that out. I want to, um, I, I want to leave everything to chance, you know, everything, try and leave everything to be defined by the moment rather than come in there with, um, with, with too many, with too many, um, what's the word like boundaries, you know, hmm. boundaries mean boundaries, meaning like that's an acceptable kick drum sound, you know, like sometimes yeah. I'll get like, a really good drum take and then I'll stop playing and go grab a glass of water or whatever and come back to the studio and listen to it without headphones and be like, Oh my God, that's the worst kick drum sound. But I, <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it because the take is really good and I'm just, I'm not going to get a better one out of myself. So I just live with the crappy sound. Um, and that's sort of how all the early records were were made um the ones that i love and respond to most of all um are the ones that weren't made at 
like the record plant or, uh, you know, or at Sunset Sound or any, any big famous, like high production facility, um, hit factory. Those aren't necessarily my favorite records. My favorite records are the ones that were made at like stacks in the middle of the night or Beatles records, even like, even though EMI, EMI studios was like state of the art, you know, it was four track and they were still trying to figure out how to record rock and roll at that studio. They, they never recorded rock and roll there before the Beatles. So like, yeah, there's something in the, the being uncomfortable and unfamiliar and, and, uh, it, that, it, it kind of like creates these mistakes that, uh, but they're not mistakes for me. They're just part of the, part of the whole picture. Hmm. I, I don't have a sequitur for this, but it's going to be on point with what you were just saying. <laughs> and mm. it's that there's, I find three kinds of fans of yours at this point in time. There's the first one, the people who found out about you through all the major label stuff and other people's projects, you know, the traditional organic way. Then there's the yeah. people who kind of know your discography, but they just color within the lines. Like they don't know about all the EPs. So for example, they'll know about Lurch and they'll know about Electro Deep Perfecto, but maybe they don't know about Melon or Let's Get Christmas or anything like that. And then the right. third one are right. the people who just know everything. They probably have more of your demos than you do at this point in time. Yeah. So where yeah. I'm going with that is I don't think that you've ever had a period of writer's block. Like, yeah, there's been, hey, Mike hasn't had a traditional album in five years, but there hasn't been a period where you didn't write 50 songs in a year. Am I wrong about that? That's true. Those 50 songs might have been 50 really bad songs. (laughs) You know what I mean? To, To get to the good songs. It's just important for me to keep writing because, uh, it's like, um, yeah, I, songwriting and in the pursuit of songs, it's, it's as important to me as anything I do in my life. And it's not work. It's not a hobby. It's not my passion. It's actually my life, you know? Um, so I do write, but they're not all good. Um, and, um, I, that's not why I, there's such a, uh, lapse of time between records. The truth is, is that, um, as you mentioned, like there's people that know about me from the very beginning. Um, but my even my very beginning was was hobbled by uh, missteps, misfortune, and um, things that happened to really young bands happened to me. Uh, yeah. Whereas we got we got signed, and it was me and my best friend, and then the producer and my manager and the label kind of broke us up because they were like, "Well, Mike's the star," you know that type of stupid shit, and I didn't agree with it. But, um, you know, all the actions I, as a young man, I was taking kind of, you know, the direction of the people telling me, well, okay, you're a band, but do this. It was, it was always blocking Todd out of, uh, participating. So, you know, I, I take full culpability for that, but, um, but back in the day, it was, it was, it was a bad start, you know, and, um, so we've, I've never been consistent in the, um, in consistently in the business. Like I know I have friends that like will get signed and then go on tour. And the next thing you know, their, they, their career is launched. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they spend the rest of their lives figuring out how to stay launched. It's like 
it's kind of like doing a line of cocaine a little too early <laughs> in the party. <laughs> and you're like, well, who's got the drugs? Like, this party sucks. I thought this was going to be the best time. And then it's not. And, you know, and you end up rifling through the medicine cabinet in someone's bathroom. And, um, <laughs> take, you know, and you, you're taking whatever pills you can find. And that's like the music career of a lot of people. Um, but for me, I, I, at the beginning, I was, it just, it was a real bad first step. And you know me, uh, and you know, like my foray, my first steps in the, uh, into the music business, I've always been a musician and a songwriter, but like the actual business was really late because, um, I was, uh, you know, I, my, my first wife was really sick, you know, all this, but yeah. whatever, just for people to know. And then, you know, she was really sick. And then for years I was taking care of her and, um, uh, you know, and then she died And the, the result of the more, like the, the, I was mourning to over that for like a decade after it happened. So like, you know, but I'm still writing songs and people like, you know, like, um, would would recognize something in me that was that was of value, and if I could only get my shit together, and um, Adam Schlesinger being one of those people, um, you know, when Kim died, I um, I called him up and I was like, I got to get out of Boston because people don't know what to do with me. Um, they're just kind of looking at me and like you know, uh, it, they just don't know what to do with like a young man who just lost his wife, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I moved in with Adam and, um, and he was in the eye of the, of this storm in New York. Um, this really cool scene that he was not only a part of, he like helped start, you know, and, um, introduced me to all his friends. And, and it, it, within like a month, I got a publishing deal and then, um, they, you know, we were trying to convince Chris Collingwood to move from Boston um, using me as an example, <laughs> you know, like Mike did it, you can do it too, you know, and then right. Chris moved and it became, and I tried to convince Todd to move and, you know, it, um, and like, you know, the, the, uh, but like Adam just recognizing like, Mike, if you could just get your business hat on your, you know, he didn't say that, but like, if you could just figure out your, your direction and kind of like go for it, you could really do this. And, um, yeah, I it just was a, a, a real bad combination of like poor management and um, poor timing, and also I was mourning. Yeah. And I just so much shit was happening, Darren, at the time, and I just didn't know how to how to be in it. You know what I mean? How to be like real present and um, circling back to the recordings I make now, and just my goal is just to try and be present. In, in every moment that I'm making music. And um, so, you know, as you can see, it's, it's, it's this long thread that I keep pulling and, and I could talk about it until, um, until, uh, you know, I kind of meet myself on the other end, but it's, I'll never really know the answer to this stuff. So that's why I don't have writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those things as an outsider because I don't live through your pain or anything like that, but it's got to be one of those things that you can kind of 
laugh at all the people that gave you the advice when you were in your 20s and 30s of, well, if Mike just did this, things would work out for him. But they're they're not going to work out with him because he doesn't have his stuff together. And then here you are at this age, not only making a living, but super respected with a catalog that you're probably 70% proud of at this point, (laughs) where the phone is ringing, where it's more you reaching out to people. I mean, more people reaching out to you than you have to reach out to. Like you're not one of those let's do lunch kind of people. And a lot of those people who take every meeting who thought that that was the right way to do it, things kind of petered out for them. Would you at least give into that, that maybe you were right? Oh, I mean, I've honestly accepted that, like, I'm exactly where I should be. And I appreciate you saying that. I mean, because we've known each other for years and you know, you know how I've struggled with this, um, um, with that kind of, that, that, that gene that I lack, you know, that, that like, um, it might be a narcissistic gene. I'm, I'm not too sure exactly what the gene is, but whatever it is, I, I miss, I'm missing that. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it might be in my favor. You know, I, I, I can't sit here and honestly be like, yeah, dude, I was right. But I can say, it, it, you know, I, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. You know, I, I really do mean that. And I think it was like, it might have been. 10 years ago, maybe more, you and I were driving probably to San Francisco from LA, um, on a long drive. That's what, that's what we were doing. Yeah. And you, um, and you were, you were like, you did one of those like road movie things where like you asked me, what are your life goals? And I was like, fuck, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) But it was hard to answer. Couldn't answer it. I'm like, I I don't know. I, I don't. So, and there's people that walk around with like, crib notes of how they want their life to turn out like the way the script you know like the, the, the lines for their next uh you know next thing they're supposed to do or say yeah but yeah I, I just lack that i just lack it but i will say i think one of the things i answered was i'd love i'd love to play small theaters all around the world yes um and you were like that's a good goal and then the universe listened to me right and i ended up going on tour with ryan and playing theaters all around the world, I should have been more specific and said, <laughs> "Me as the headline, my own show." Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. Yeah, you said that you wanted to do one month a year of playing theaters all over the place, and I think you said you wanted to do an album a year or something. And if I yeah. have my timeline correct, that was before Electro Di Perfecto was even written. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Um, it, I'm glad one of us has a steel trap for memory. <laughs> In fact, that <laughs> trip you wrote. Um, uh, I did. You wrote a song. Uh, what's at the, the song? At, at Columbus the, Day Parade. Yeah, you wrote that song with different lyrics, but uh, that, that's right. But bring it all together here again. You didn't follow the advice, and all these people who knew better than you were telling you, "Oh man, he's never going to amount to anything." Yet organically you connected with Ryan and that was a couple of years with of your life and you were organically connected with Mandy and that's been a couple of years of your life and brought you to Dawes and that's all connected with your work with Rachel Yamagata which isn't that connected to Dan Wilson I forgot how you connected with Dan but it's kind of like the good work led to good work led to good work over and over again I think that's right I, I think that anybody um 
especially anybody in Los Angeles can testify that that's, that's just how it's done. You know, um, I had some friends over here last night actually for dinner. And at one point it was like, you know, you know, we're responsible dinner in the backyard, of course, like six feet. It's so awkward to do that, but we do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. We're in the backyard and, um, in whatever, I think Audrey was like, uh, do you want me to get a bottle of wine? Like, and, and so she left and we started talking about business at dinner. And that's just how it's done in Los Angeles. It's like, it's, um, it's like a Robert Altman movie in a way. Like when, when I would look at those movies and be like, wow, do people really do that? You know, like talk about scripts and parts and stuff that, at, in like, social gatherings and that's actually how 90% of the deals get done yeah. in this town. So like for me, when I moved here, what was that, you know, 12 years ago or something, I started, that was way easy, uh, more natural for me Dan, than going to an office. Cause in New York, it's all about lawyers and office meetings and taking those lunches in LA, in my world anyway, in the, in the indie rock, uh, world um now the jazz indie rock world it's like um it's um it's way more it's way less formal and and way more like just who you know and who who you really connect with bringing it back though to the new record did you finish it in february did i read that correctly yeah um i finished um let's see i i recorded it at the end of february and um into march so i probably finished it more like i don't remember but i I think i finished it at the end of march it went it it, i was writing it on and off and then um like i was writing it over i recorded that song the first song usa up all night i recorded that uh over the christmas break in 2019 so you know, when there was, uh, we just, everyone's on break and Eric and I it was pre COVID. So Eric came over here and, you know, we did that together and that was like, Oh shit, I really like the sound of this. I really like this song. This could be the start of a new album. And then we were up in my, I was up in green Valley Lake, which is a really cool place to hang out near LA, you know, and it snows up there in the winter time. And that's where I took the album cover. And that's when I blurted God Muffin when I said, hey, Audrey, take a picture of me in the snow. This looks so cool. I look like a wolfman or something. And and she said, for what? And I said, for an album cover. And she, and she said, your album? What are, you, what are you talking about? You, have, you don't have any new songs. I'm like, yeah, it's called God Muffin. And that, that's kind of <laughs> how the whole thing started. Yeah. And then actually I played, I saw Adam Schlesinger on Valentine's Day in February. We played... Um, our monthly, we had a monthly show together. We were playing here in LA and, um, and, uh, we played and, uh, uh, and I told him the same thing. He's like, what are you, are you working on a new album? I said, yeah, it's called God Muffin. He's like, what? <laughs> and I just started, I just kept saying that and I kept, you know, I kept writing songs and they were slowly coming. And then when Adam got sick, um, in the whole COVID, um, uh, it, it, it just kind of hit us. It, it, I was in New York when it hit the States. Um, I'm convinced I had it when I was in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had it. You know, there's this whole theory that it came to the West Coast first. I'm pretty sure me and uh, a couple of other people that were in my entourage had it. Anyway, 
we're in New York and, and I started writing more songs and then Adam got sick and, um, it kind of shut off the creativity for a little bit. And then, then I just was thinking about how like he's lying in a fucking hospital bed and he's not even conscious. And here I am like really sad and confused and scared and anxious. And yeah, why am I not, why am I not just playing music? Like I should be playing music. So I started writing songs with Adam in mind, not like writing songs for him, not necessarily about him, but he's in the DNA a lot. Cause um, me and my buddy, Sam Hollander uh, in, and Jonathan Daniel, like we were all talking uh, during this time because we're all close with Adam. And in fact, I introduced Jonathan to Adam. And um, so like, yeah, we were all talking about it. Like he's going to be okay. Is he going to be okay? We're crying. We're laughing. We're having all these conversations. Not all fed into my music. Um, so, and I've just been, you know, repeatedly just, channeling him and thinking about him and we just started to reconnect and uh and like i said doing these monthly gigs together and we had a real fractured relationship but i think all good friendships do Mm -hmm. and all good friendship you know it's like all good friendships have scars underneath that keep the thing tough and um you know and we we just stayed friends and and yeah so the writing and the recording took place around all in that time. And then when Adam died, um, I just took that and I just kept, I just kept recording Darren, you know, and I, you know, just kept going and I just wanted to get it done and make a record. Like I said, the songs aren't like about Adam per se, although you could read into it and maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe they are, but for me, it's more about like the DNA, like, I'd be playing bass, for instance, mm-hmm. and Adam really loved to, he loved to play straight eighth notes, you know, he's like, and he also loved really busy bass lines, but like, you know, when we were coming up, learning how to be in a band, um, you know, pre-Fountains of Wayne, when it was me, Chris, and Adam, and and, uh, and whoever on drums, like Jeff would, was this one guy that played in Pinwheel with us, this early band, and like, I would grab bass sometimes, and Adam would play guitar, and he'd always turn to me and be like, man, you're way too busy. Like he loved just really mellow bass. Um, <laughs> so I, I tried to do that a bunch, just sort of like, almost like it was him playing bass on the record, you know? So with, with those bass lines, a memory that I have is when you did the Kelly Jones album, Shebang, which Adam wrote a song for, and you would be playing bass live and people would be watching you playing bass, and you were just making up the bass lines as you were going, even if you wrote the songs, and you were basically shredding on bass. You were really busy in such an interesting way that, again, I don't think you knew what you were going to do next. Yeah, it's true, man. I, I, I just try and, you know, I do know the songs, I know the chords, you know, I, I, and I, I kind of know scales, but not like, you know, on a mixolydian level or whatever i just not it's just not my bag that's all but yeah that's i like to i like to kind of look at music as like undiscovered country every time i i involve myself in it and um but yeah i appreciate that it's funny it, i remember some of those gigs at joe's pub playing bass it, it i i rarely play bass live um because it, it honestly 
it's like my drumming in the studio. It's, it's a specific thing, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in the words of Spinal Tap, it's a selective, selective audience. There's a yeah, fine line between stupid and clever. <laughs> oh man. The track that you just mentioned, USA up all night. I'm maybe the youngest old person out there so that I know what USA up all night is referring to. It's that great late night USA network show. And I love that yeah. your music used to not have any pop culture references. I think maybe the Lurch album, when you mentioned Cornelius on a song and Lurch yeah. in general, I think that was maybe the first time you really said names of existing things that you were into. And then before yeah. we know it on Electro Di Perfecto, we get that song that references Ario Speedwagon, and the Beatles and the Stones and all that. So yeah. now yeah. We, we have tasteful pop culture references in your songs and something like USA up all night. I know you're a big horror guy, but were you watching TV all night? So that's where the horror came from. Uh, good question. Um, good question. I mean, for your listeners that know what that is, you know, it was, you know, that it was like less about the movies you were watching and more about Rana, the, the, um, the host or Gilda Godfrey, who was the host as well. Um, in later, I think later. Yeah, later he was towards the end. Um, it was just Rhonda Shears, I think that was her name. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, 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 I may or may not have interviewed her before. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Um, but yeah, it was really about her and about keeping, the, you know, the TV on and having it be the uh, my company. You know what I mean? Uh, so Yeah. And the horror movies just was all about you know, I, I grew up, I was lucky enough to grow up in a, in a wave of, um, mass media promoting, um, all the universal monster movies became syndicated, uh, I think in the fifties. And so they started showing them and then baby boomers grew up with this monster craze because all these monster movies were chopped up and put on TV. Um, and that's when the whole like monster craze started in the sixties, but in the seventies, there was a second wave. And that wave was actually even bigger because it included all the Japanese, uh, like Godzilla and Mothra um, and all that stuff and Ultraman. So, yeah, there was just so much to feed on. Uh, and I just loved all I loved the um, hands on feeling of like watching King Kong, for instance, you know, which was done in the 30s and watching that um, the original one. And you can see like the thumbprints on his fur from like the dude that Harry, that was, you know, Harry something. I can't remember his last name. Uh, but the, you know, the, the model, the model guy, like making, uh, King Kong move, animating him, you can see like his thumbprints and shit. And like, you can see the way things, and my recordings are the same way. You know, you can hear me press record or you can hear the dog next door barking. <laughs> and, um, I, I really like the hand. I like the, there's signs that somebody touched this. This was not made by a filter or auto tuner or, you know, a robot. This is not robot music. I love robot music as much as the next person. Yeah. Um, I really do. I really do. Um, so I'm I mean, you did a whole album of that, that again, the yeah. people not really following the discography may not know temple of static. So you do actually <laughs> like the robot music. Yeah. That's a, that's a, 
very druggy album that I, I buried, but yeah, thanks for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, yeah, I think I, I love monster movies. I love how, you know, um, just how stupid they are too. Like I, I like how, uh, thrown together some of them are and, um, and, uh, and just homemade handmade. And I have to tell you, I'm starting to make my own monster movies. Um, instead of videos. So because I can't tour um, and I'm not a big fan of live streams, I'm going to try and do it. I'll try and get into it. But even like, you know, you asked me like, can we do zoom for this interview? And I didn't want to do it just because I'm so tired of being on, on internet camera. Yeah. Um, It just really depresses me. (laughs) Uh, So I I started doing videos and, um, the first one's coming out, I think, next week or the week after. Uh, well, I'm not sure when you'll air this, but anyway, it's for the song called Drug Rug, and it's the first of, I guess, five monster movies. I call them monster movies because that's what they really are. Um, the first of five. So those will be all being released as um, we ramp up promotion for you know, our version of promotion for uh, God <laughs> Muffin. That makes sense to me. And do you know around yeah. how many of those you might make or is it just if it gets traction we'll keep making them no i'm i i don't i don't really you know i hope people react and i hope they i hope they do something but the intent is really to um to make the movies so i don't know why movies i've never you've known me for a while like we said and i'm I, i've had like two videos under my belt you know i just i'm not really a video person i'm not a my wife is, but I'm not a very visual person. So, but I love monster movies and I love like monster stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I just started doing this and the, the, the question was like, how do I fund this? And, um, I got a call. I can't be specific cause I don't want to dog the company that hired me. Um, but I got a call to write some music for a big company and, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think I could really allocate the time to do it properly. So I passed. And then the producer of that, of the, the series called me up and said, man, it's, we only need what you do. We don't need you to do anything else. Just do what Mike Viola would do for this specific scene. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I, I can do that. Um, and, you know, we only need a voice memo. We don't need you to go to the studio and everything. And, and, um, we just need a voice memo. So I did it. And, um, and then I just, I didn't submit a voice demo because I was inspired. You know, I was like, Oh, this is good. I'm just going to play some drums on this. And then I fleshed the whole thing out, sent it to them and they really loved it. And then they asked me to do another one. So I started making this like income and this all happened on weekends and stuff. So it was really doable for my schedule. Um, cause I had two kids and, very busy here. But anyway, I, I made this money and um, I decided to, to use it to fund my monster movies. <laughs> um, almost the way that like, you know, Peter Fox did Columbo to, to fund the Cassavetes movies. <laughs> so, you know, and um, Orson Welles would do these really embarrassing commercials the and things like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to fund his crazy movies. So I was like, I don't, you know, I read that book, Infinite Jest, which it sat on my shelf forever and I never read it. And it became like a joke between 
me and my buddy Pete, um, cause he has a copy on his shelf on his nightstand that he's never read as well. And then, you know, I started reading it there, uh, I guess it was last year. And, the, and there's, you know, a guy in the, in the, in the book, the, the dad in the book becomes a filmmaker late in his life. And he is so prolific. It's, you know, and, and, and Jeff is one of the names of one of his short movies. And, um, that's not how I got inspired to do this. And when I say Castle Babies, I'm obviously joking. Yeah. Because it's, um, they're, ju- they're just music videos, man. But just spending money, throwing money at an idea, um, and repeatedly, it just feels, it feels life affirming to just take a chunk of money and be like, I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to make this movie with my friends. And, um, and so I did. And I'm just going to keep doing that until, um, you know, until well, I guess we run out of ideas. But right now it feels pretty fruitful. So I, I think we'll probably get like seven little movies done, ultimately. That is very exciting to hear. Cool. I'm looking forward to all that. I, one of the three videos that I do remember you doing was Soundtrack of My Summer, which was horror-themed. So Yes. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So uh, another thing that I'm curious about, and if, if, if it's too soon to say anything about this, I'll edit this out or I'll cut it or minimize it or anything like that. But partially thanks to you, when I interviewed Taylor from the band Dawes, he said that he was never a metal guy, but you floated an idea to him about recording some jokey, commercially viable metal songs. Is that something that might actually happen? um i don't remember the commercially viable part of it um but i did give him uh uh you know he he he, yeah we've been we've been writing these um uh these riffs he's really uh probably the most prolific riff master that i've ever met like um he's got so many riffs so um, I was getting him to just like slow the riffs down and, uh, you know, just take that riff, take like three notes out and then slow it down and play it again. And, and it's so badass. He's so good at it. And then, you know, his band is great and it's just a natural thing. It's going to happen. It's got to happen. We even have a name for it. <laughs> we have uh- a name for the project. Are you allowed to say it, or we just have to wait and see? No, I'll tell you. It's called The Wizard of Dawes. <laughs> Wizard with two Zs? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> there's no chance no. that that has any influence from your early days of Ozzy Osbourne. No chance. <laughs> no chance at all, man. That's a stretch. <laughs> Yeah, that oh, oh, that's yet another thing where you have to go, well, I can't wait to see what comes from Mike on, on this end. Uh, now, yeah. one thing, another thing that's great about the album to my ears is you're still taking major chances with your singing. A lot of artists, once they cross like 40, okay, let, let's look at um, Whitesnake, for example. When you see right. David Coverdale sing live, the song, the music's perfect. The music sounds awesome. But every time there's a high note coming, the mic just magically moves away from his face. I'm sure you notice he's not he's not uh, aiming for any of the high notes. In your case, you're you seem to be taking more risks than ever with high notes. And I'm wondering, yeah. 
if you are these days doing anything to preserve your voice, if you are doing vocal warm-ups or you're still just able to do everything without trying? You know, I think I'm way more relaxed now. And um, so when you're relaxed, you're able to take deeper breaths. And um, yeah, I, I, I think it has to do less with the physical aspect. I don't warm up or anything i'm still the same idiot that just <laughs> rolls in you know what i mean just rolls in and lets it rip um again it's mostly because there's so much for me to discover in the unknown of what i'm doing and um and sometimes i really regret it <laughs> sometimes i'm like shit man i should have warmed up um and you know especially when you're playing with people and you know you're sitting in a room with such accomplished musicians you know most Time, most of my time is spent, you know, pre-COVID, obviously, but most of my time is spent with other musicians mm -hmm. um, doing something or other. And, you know, I've become very close with Sebastian Steinberg, uh, another... Uh, yeah, Soul you know, He was in New York and his band, Soul Calling, yeah. And um, that guy, is he emailed me a voice memo this morning of this, um, this new song he wrote, and... I'm just astounded. Number one, that he can sing like that and then play jazz guitar like that. Like, and then, you know, a week will go by, he'll send me and we send each other stuff back and forth and he might send me something and it'll be like this Brian Eno soundscape, you know what I mean? And so I guess I'm digressing, but like, you know, just being around accomplished musicians, I think the thing I have to offer is less technique and stuff. And as a singer, it's the same thing. It's not really... I don't really look at it as the high note more about like, um, um, yeah, it's just kind of following the, the melodic path. And if it leads me up there in the attic, uh, if it's a little, you know, there's some cobwebs up there or whatever, I'll blow them out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but actually I've, I've found that in my older age, I've been singing a lot lower too. Um, just, I'm just more relaxed. I think that's really what it is. But when, I'm thinking like mid 2000s, early 2010s, when you'd be playing the song Hang On Mike, because that'd be one of the, the shouted out requested kinds of songs that you'd have to do yeah. every night. It was a 50-50 shot as to whether you were going to be hitting those notes or not. And it's, I think yeah. you said, um, i trying to think of your exact quote about like, even when it's bad, it's pretty good. It, it was one of those kinds of things. Uh, yeah. Where yeah, the, the, it didn't those, bother. those notes are fa are falsetto. You yeah. know, so those those guys are very fragile. <laughs> <laughs> but but the key yeah. is overall with this record, I think it's refreshing because it's honest, even when it's from the perspective of other people. Like a, a song like "All You Can Eat," again, that's from the yeah. perspective of another person. It's still honest. You're still taking chances. It's organic. And I imagine you'd have to be proud of it. I don't know if you're going to say it's the best thing you've ever done, but it's probably one of the best things you've done, right? Oh, thanks, man. Thank you so much. You mean that song or the record? The record as a whole. I know that wasn't yeah. a, a yeah. standard question. A lot of people, when they do right. press, they have to go, and trust me, this is the best thing I've ever done because the <laughs> last album had problems. And then you look back and... They talk about the last album. Oh, this is the best thing I've ever done. And that last one was right. tough to make. I'd have to imagine, right. though, this was not an easy record to make because it's very personal. But it's one that you're never going to go, oh, man, I, what was I doing? 
Thanks, man. I mean, I, I, um, I really like this record. I think it's a really solid, like, it's a really solid listen. And I really like the songs and I'm proud of the way, um, the whole thing came out. And yeah, I, I think, I think I sort of, because I'm, I look at it like I'm on my third life, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I really do. I, I look at it not like, like, you know, life is long. You just have to like stop doing, sometimes you need to like stop the life you're doing and start another one. And for some people that looks like, you know, multiple rides, multiple Porsches. Uh, for some people that looks like, you know, multiple homes um, in, in different jobs, like bouncing from job to job. Um, but for me, what it looks like is, just reinventing um, my, like reinventing the now, like reclaiming the moment I'm in, like just taking, stopping and looking around and, and, re, and reclaiming where I am, you know, and, um, and, and, t- and taking full ownership in it. So like, I'm an old man <laughs> and, you know, I'm gray. I've been through the ringer. But it doesn't matter. My stories are still my stories. And historically stories, you know, all this stuff is like my cave paintings, you know? So it doesn't matter if there's an audience. I wish there was. I wish there was more of an audience, rather, so I could do that little theater tour we talked about. Mm -hmm. That really is a goal. But I think about, like, Mark Maron, you know, and how um, he, you know, struggled with his comedy career forever. And, and then he found his, one of his lives, like, I don't know which number it was for Mark, but like his podcast life, like he found, and it's not just like, oh yeah, that's a good market for you to be in Mark. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't (laughs) at the time. Yeah. He just did it and he was drawn to it. And, um, and so I'm, I'm very similar like that. And we're, I think we're the same age and Mark and, um, you know, it's just like, I, I, you know, I'm just, it's my story and, um, and it might be interesting to some people and ever since hang on Mike, which is really what I consider my start here record. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's a bunch of records before that, but I really feel like hang on Mike was the first record I made that I was able to just do exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And it was the one that, for me, it was the one that reached the people I wanted to reach, and um, and I and um, and so uh, yeah, it's just and that's kind of where my story begins. Is hang on, Mike, and that's pretty late in my career. Uh, yeah, you would have been thirty three, thirty five around. Hang on, yeah, Mike. yeah, that's right. You know, and it's pretty late in my career, but it it's okay, and I look at it like. You know, that I learned so much making that record and I've continued to follow that path. And my third life started, I think, when I made The American Egypt, which was in 2018. Um, just the way I made that record. And I mostly played everything on that besides a few um, a few drum passes. Um, but other than that, like, it's the same thing. It's just a guy in a studio doing exactly what he wants to do and, and, and not, and it's like, I'm in my world. I'm considering what people are going to think. I'm considering all that, 
I'm just not con- considering the commercial viability of it. And I think for some artists, that's really important to keep doing that. And I think for me, that's the only choice I have. Because if I'm going to try and compete with One Republic or The Killers, you know what I'm saying? Or like any, I'm trying to think of a band or singer songwriter that, you know, I, I'd even be in their lane. I don't, I don't, I'm like in my own lane doing my own thing in my corner of the world. But if I like got out of my little corner of the world and I wanted to like compete on like indie rock radio, like that would be delusional. I, you know, it would be completely delusional. I just instantly get lost. And, um, both figuratively and literally and just totally get lost and lose so much money and lose so much creativity and opportunity that would come out of just following your own path. And, but being mindful of what people might think. And even if it's like, I'm thinking about seriously, man, I, sometimes I, you pop into my head sometimes, Darren, you know, cause you're an old friend. So it's like, sometimes it'd be like, I bet this is something Darren would like. And <laughs> it will, you know, I'm seriously like, it'll be, it will be, um, you know, it won't be like a target that I'm trying to hit, but it will come into my head or like, you know, Adam's really going to smile when, when he, when he hears me put this, you know, fifth over the, the tonic, he's going to laugh or whatever, uh, for real, like little inside jokes for the musicians pass back and forth. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'm mindful. And my thing is when I'm, when I'm working with young artists trying to, you know, if either I'm producing or if I'm A&Ring a young artist, I say, you need to ask yourself, what do people want to hear coming out of your face? <laughs> yeah. What do they want to hear? Like, do they want to hear you bitching and moaning? Do they want to hear you celebrating? Do they want it to be high? Do they want it to be effortless? Do they want you on the edge of your abilities? Do they want you like comfortably steeped in your abilities? Like, what do they want? Um, and to really consider that, and then take that into account when you're being fiercely independent and fiercely original, trying to be, you know. Um, and I think that's the, um, yeah, I think that's that's how I do all that. And um, and um, the choo choo went off the track. <laughs> well, before I ask my last question, I mean, my observation is that 10 or so years ago, somebody who was getting to know your whole thing would, would go, is he a singer-songwriter? Is he a sideman? Is he a producer? Is he a songwriter for other artists? What is he? And, you know, adding in some of the A&R work and all that, that's an extra thing of uh, what is he? But it sounds like what started off as your biggest curse is actually your biggest strength that you're a utility player and can fill in the, the holes and the gaps. Yeah. I mean, that, that might be true. You know, um, it, it could be that I'm like a little bit of a handyman, you know? Um, and, and that's okay, whatever it is. But I do feel like as an artist, um, that's the one thing I won't surrender. I, I did when I was younger, I surrendered a lot of, components um to try and get to the big picture that everyone was promising me was out there for me but i found that whenever i compromised or surrendered these components of what i truly believed whether it was my first record for columbia when i was told by um the record company to just put distorted guitars like what am i doing why does this sound so chiming 
uh, I was trying to make uh, my own my own record, and they came in and they told me to put distorted guitars on it. And so I got a bunch of drugs and some booze, and I went back into the studio. And in the middle of the night, I just shit all over the track with a bunch of distorted guitars, and they were like, "This is great," you know. <laughs> and and then I continued to do that, like uh, with Hang on Mike. I remember um, the record company was like. Um, this is really great. They didn't understand. Is it done? That's what they, this is really, really great. Is it, are you done? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why it says final on it. But yeah, I'm done. It's like, could you put a little percussion on nice to know you? And we think that's going to be the, the focus track. Uh, and nice to know you is like this Fleetwood Mac, pockety, like feel good kind of mid tempo jam. Yeah, and I went into the studio, and I did the same thing I always do. I got really resentful, and you know, bought everybody some booze, and we like went into the studio, and I got a box of percussion, and I said, "Okay, roll the tape," because um, you know everything's on tape for that record. So I'd like fucking go into the studio, pay all the bacon, all this money for me to do this, and I roll the tape, and I just take this box of percussion, and I bang it on the ground. I did the whole box. I just bang it on the ground to the downbeat of a, of, of the whole song. And uh, I submitted that. And, you know, so like resentful, like compromise that ended up in resentful action that was in a way like a little punk rock. But really what it did was just, it just cobbled any chance I ever had of like, of, uh, you know, any kind of success through the traditional business, the music business, um, uh, you know channels but but it's okay like if you're out there and you're listening and you're like doing your independent stuff and you want eight guitars playing guitar mini for the solo <laughs> just do it who gives a shit you know it's your kid painting just go I, you know I, i'm taking you way you off know. course here but imagine had that panned out the way they wanted it and nice to know you was the song that you were playing for the rest of your life. Now I love that song; it's a great song. Yeah. But imagine that was the staple, and then you're doing the Dick Fox doo-wop extravaganza all these nights, and you yeah. come out and you have to do that into that thing you do every night. You would have I know. hated everything. Well, that's the thing. I, I think that, like, I mean, not to sound super woo-woo on you or anything like that, but in a way, it's like. I just, I'm just not made for that. Yeah. And it's okay. Like I, I remember going to um, government center in Boston in the eighties had this oldies show and it was free every weekend. And I, uh, I lived in Boston by myself <clears throat> and I would go to government center and watch like Herman's Hermits uh, or like uh, uh, the association. Yeah. They play, you know, at the foot of the world trade center uh, right off the subway there, it'd be the association playing and like, People, you know, eating lunch, walking by, and kind of listening to "Cherishes the World" that I you know, and me thinking like, how were they doing this? Like, this band was the number one band in the country for a long time, and this is where 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 all that gets you at the foot of the World Trade Center, like at lunchtime. That's fucked up. Um, Or like, you know, back to Boston, like same thing. It's like you know, government center on a Saturday afternoon and it's like the drifters, but it's, it's like none of the original drifters. You know? Yeah. It's like his, his cousin or whatever. But, um, yeah, man, I, it's, it's, uh, that also is a way to kind of 
tell yourself that you are where you're supposed to be. It's, it's you know what I mean. So you're like, it's just another. You can look at it that way too. Like, ah, you're just jealous. But the truth is, is like, I think you're right. I, I, I had a hard time, you know, during that thing you do when when it came out and it was huge. I just denied the whole thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just was. I, I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, so I've never been good at like capturing the momentum and running with it and capitalizing on it. Capitalism never really sat well with me. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's one of those yeah. hindsight is twenty twenty things where again, if you had to do those two songs on the Capitol steps, that would have led you <laughs> in a bad, bad place. Whereas, you know, you will still be proud of Drug Rug in ten years. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I can play anything off Hang On Mike and be proud of it. Um, uh, and uh, there's one song on uh, the Candy Butcher's record, Play With Your Head, that I still love. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I can play this music because it's, um, like I said, it's my it's my actual story. It's not this idea of what my story is. It's not this packaged idea of what my story is and some people it the whole thing just comes out as a product you know like billy eilish for instance you know yeah like she's really authentic and lover or hater she's authentic and um is also like a walking can of coca-cola like she is a product and that that product is her you know um some people come out that way and but some people need to be kind of forced into it um and I, they, I couldn't do that. Well, my last question to you is not going to be who the best lead singer of Van Halen was, which <laughs> I sometimes do to people. I did that to Linkin Park and Matt Pinfield a couple days ago. Uh, my last question is going to oh be, uh, any last words for the kids? Advice for the kids. The kids of America. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to say something that's kind of that's very woo-woo. Woo-woo is my new term. Yes. Because uh, I live out here in L.A. And, you know, I guess, I guess my advice for the kids would be love one another. Like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or who is it that uh, originally? Yeah, that's t- <laughs> Teach Your Children Well. Yeah. Love one another. Well, no, that's a Todd Rundgren. That's a... Uh, that's a Todd Rundgren song where the chorus is love one another, but uh. it might be, it might be, I don't know. Um, just, it's, that's just so important. Sure. Even the people you hate, you got to show them a little love because we're all human and, uh, this thing's hard. Thanks for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz produced by V13 media theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Outrocast.